0: God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took him with him Peter and James and John and led them high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God.
1: God. Well, at the beginning of the sermon, feels appropriate to begin with the tribute. Um, Earlier, Christian prayed for uh, for the life of Tim Keller, and I want to say just a few things here at the outset. Uh, Tim Keller was a scholar. He was an he was an author, of course, remarkable preacher. One of the best I've ever heard in my life. But beyond that, just in terms of his personal character, one of the most brilliant men you'd ever meet and yet steeped in humility in a way you rarely see with scholars, that level of brilliance, really. And uh, some of you will know uh, that two days ago he died of pancreatic cancer after a three-year battle. And one of the reasons why I wanted to pay tribute here on the front end is because there's been no other preacher who's more impacted me than Tim Keller. Now, I know I'm one of probably three million uh, pastors around the world who can probably say that right now. But what some of you will not know is that we nearly planted a church under his auspices back in 2002. We originally feeling called uh, to plant a church and we first looked at New York City. We went up there and we met with them to talk about planting in one of the boroughs in New York, but just did not feel like it was the, the right time and the right city for us. And so several years later we came to Atlanta. So I guess we should all be grateful for that calling because uh, we're here today at City Church Side, rather than City Church in New York City. But I just wanted to pay tribute here at the outset. A remarkable man. And uh, truly, he has earned his reward today. And uh, one of the things I rejoice is, you know, there's that saying that you see in the Scriptures, well done, that good and faithful servant. And, and, and Christian already mentioned his, his last words. His, his longing was for Jesus. And not just that that he would go home, but his longing, his last words are really representing Representative of his whole ministry, that he longed for people to know Jesus the way that he knew him, and so it feels appropriate here on the outside just to honor one of our great saints in the church who has passed on to his reward now. Well, feels appropriate maybe since I just mentioned a New Yorker to mention another New Yorker, uh, Sophion Stevens. Sophion Stevens was is a uh, singer-songwriter. He actually I don't know if he still does, but was going to one of our sister churches in one of the boroughs of New York City in Brooklyn actually. And he had a song a number of years ago called The Transfiguration. That's what this passage is about. And Stephen and sings in a way that is really meditative. And, and as I was playing the song for our staff this week as we we're preparing to kind of think about the passage, I really felt like, man, that is really the space that we find ourselves in regarding this passage. It feels very meditative to me. And so I want to approach it in that way. And really, what I have for you today is that I want you to delight in the person of Jesus. Primarily what you're going to see today is that we're going to spend time just looking at the person of Jesus to see more of him revealed as he was revealed in the transfiguration. To see that character in the transfiguration revealed to us. And then very quickly at the very end, I just want to say a few words about how do we respond to seeing Jesus revealed to us. So, lack of time, let me go ahead and just jump right in here. With And there are four things, and the first thing is this, his glory. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me again. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let me go ahead and stop there. So if you were with us the last several weeks, you know that several weeks ago, we looked at Jesus saying, well, who do people say that I am? Well, like Elijah maybe, or a teacher, a prophet of some sort. But who do you say that I am? Then Peter, of course, steps forward as he always does. and says, you're the Christ. Well done, Peter, until the following week, last week, right? And he's like, I don't like this kind of Messiah, the one that would suffer and die as Jesus was beginning to teach on that now. And so famously, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter, right? Get back in line like you're, you're blocking my mission here. And right after that we come to this first verse. And this first verse, most commentators believe, is now a setup for the transfiguration. Because it says, the kingdom of God will come in power. Now what is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is simply the the rule and reign of God in the universe. And here's what we know. That reign has already begun, but it's not yet complete. Theologians like to call this the now, but not yet. But what you see in the transfiguration is is a big chunk of now in the kingdom of God. But Jesus, who's cloaked in His humanity, we see the fullness of the glory of God on display, which now leads us to verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. So some of you know that, that Jesus had more than 12 disciples. He actually had 70 disciples, we're told, in one of the passages. But primarily spent his time with the 12. But even within the 12, he had his three. Like he had his three buddies that he spent more time with than anyone else. And there are three scenes in the Gospels where it's just Jesus and the three, and this is one of them. And so they are led into a very intimate space. This is something remarkable. Now, we're not told what the mountain was, but most people believe that it was probably Mount Hermon. A 9,000 foot tall mountain high on the border between Syria and Israel today. The most northernmost point that Jesus went to in his ministry. And high up on that mountain, it says that he was transfigured, which means what? Well, that's verse 3. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, one thing I learned is that uh, I had no idea they had a concept of bleaching back then. But did you know that? I, I had no idea. Like I'm thinking Clorox. They didn't have that, obviously. Uh, but There's some form of bleaching. But imagine taking Clorox and taking your best whites and putting them in, cleaning them, and I'm telling you what, what Mark says is your best efforts at bleaching have nothing on the radiance that was coming out of Jesus. Like that. That is just mind-blowing to think about. Like How radiant was He? The text says here. And I, and I was trying as I was preparing this week, I was trying to say, how do we really... Wrap our minds and our hearts around what does it mean that he was radiant, uh, that he's whiter than the, the whitest of whites? And, and the only thing I could think of, the only thing close to that I could think of is a wedding day. You know, 23 years ago, as of July 1 this year, I watched my bride walk down the aisle. And I'm here to tell you, there was no one more beautiful or radiant than my bride that day. It melted my heart. And, and I looked around this room, I actually got to officiate some of your weddings. And I have one of the best views in town. Like I was right in the middle and I watched you. And I was like, you know, for some of you guys, I could have like waved my hands in your face and you would not have been able to break your concentration you're so transfixed on your bride. And for those of you you know, who have watched your bride come down the aisle, we, 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 we all have the same thing in common. We've never seen such glory. Now, why is it, and by the way, not just our culture, most cultures today actually present the bride in white why do we do that maybe i should ask this question for those of you who are married uh, you know guys i want to ask you this question when is your wife most presented as she truly is is it on her wedding day or some other day you better get the answer right on this one guys it's the wedding day why because the the wedding day is a symbol of glory it's a symbol of what's already there. You see, it isn't just that, that on the day that your bride walked down the aisle, suddenly she's not glorious. You know that, right? <laughs> she was always glorious. Human beings are always glorious because we're made in the image of God. And what this text is saying here is that Jesus was fully human, but He was also fully God. And, and for, for a few moments, the cloak of humanity is taken off. We see Jesus in all of His God incarnateness. In all of His divinity. In all of His glory. This is, this is, a, this is why this is to me so meditative. To Just, just to stop and, and think about the most beautiful expression, the most beautiful scene. Maybe it is a wedding day. Maybe it's something else. It's got nothing on this scene that Peter, James, and John took in. The revelation of glory. But there's another picture I want you to see here that that Mark intends us to see. It actually goes to the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament reading that we read earlier. It's a picture where Moses is going up on Mount Sinai. This is the mountain of God, and it says that a cloud descended and, and Moses met with God there, and what did what did Moses receive? He received the Ten Commandments. He received the very law of God that would form his people, that would give them identity. And I want to just reread a few verses from that text in Exodus twenty four. It says the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. You see, this is a continuation of Sinai, but it's bigger than Sinai. Why? Because where was the glory for Moses? The glory for Moses was in the cloud. That surrounded him. It was what was emanating out of the cloud, we might say, but for the transfiguration, where was the glory? It wasn't just in the cloud, verse 7, but it was in Jesus. That the light, this transfiguration, this explosion of light, this explosion of, of glory that came out of him was something more than Sinai. It was a picture of God dwelling with us, his presence. The gloriousness of His presence. No wonder John, one of those there, in chapter 1 of his Gospel account, he says, we have beheld His face and we have seen His glory. We have beheld His face and we have seen His glory. And then writing the book of Revelation, at the very end, chapter 21, verse 22, says, in the new heavens new earth, there will be no sun, there will be no moon, for God Himself is their light, the text says. One of the very first passages that John ever wrote and the very last one that he wrote, verse 22 of chapter 21. This picture of glory. The greatness of God being on display. Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus Christ is the radiance of God. There it is again. The radiance of God and the exact representation of His being. In other words, when you see God, excuse me, when you see Jesus, you see God the Father. You see who God is for us. Right? This is where Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so as we come to this passage, as we see the radiant glory of Jesus, we see exactly who God is in his character for us, which I think helps set up now the second thing that's revealed. It's very similar, but nuanced, different at the same time, is greatness. Look at verses 4 through 6 with me now. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. You've you got to love Peter. Like, we just keep running into this guy passage after passage, don't we? Right? You've got to love this guy. You know, we, I was, uh, went through the counseling program. One of the classes we took was learning how, when not to speak. You know, like some of the best counseling happens when you just listen. That's 80% of the battle uh, when you're sitting with a client is just to listen well. Peter didn't take that class. Or if he did, he failed it, right? And so, so Peter just blurts out, like, he's, he's in a moment of, of fear here. He's not sure what to say. So when he, he's not sure what to say, he says, well, I'm just going to say something. And what does he say? Now, uh, scholars aren't sure exactly why he said what he said. Meaning, like, uh, why did he say something at all? Why did he talk about the three tenths? Well, some people say, well, maybe he's thinking about the Feast of Tabernacles, like some, uh, this moment when, when God dwells among his people. And so this is a moment to kind of capture that. A lot of people say, well, no, he just wants to prolong this moment here. Like this transfiguration, this moment of something that's mind-blowing. And he's like, man, let's just kind of settle in here. Let's kind of sit down together and let's just have a conversation, all of us. Moses, Elijah, Jesus, and the disciples, the three of them, right? So we don't know exactly why he's doing about it. But here's what I want you to see, though, that we do know about. Think about how Peter approaches Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. They're equals. Remember the, this confession, or prior to the confession, well, who do people say that I am? Elijah? Great teacher? One of the prophets? But who do you say that I am? Well, you're the Christ. And then, like I said, he forgets that the following week. And then here, he forgets it again. And he compares... Jesus to Moses and Elijah. He just, remember, he calls him rabbi. Like the proper thing would have been to bow down and worship Jesus in the transfiguration. But instead, he just captures the moment saying, this is a great moment of history here. God's history. Great teachers arriving all together. Here's what I want you to say. Who was Moses and who was Elijah? Moses and Elijah represented all of the Old Testament. Moses was the giver of the law, the Ten Commandments. And who was Elijah. Elijah was considered the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. In fact, so much so, there was a belief that Elijah would one day return. And we know that in part because at the very end, at the crucifixion, some people said, oh, we think that's Elijah. And who do people say oh, "Yeah, maybe, Maybe your Elijah, return. So clearly, we can see this, this cultural picture here of Elijah returning. But what is it that Moses and Elijah there represent? Well, here's something very important. The transfiguration in the Gospel of Mark is not the only place where we see the transfiguration. We also see it in Matthew and Luke. And why I mention that is that Matthew and Luke give us details that Mark does not and vice versa. Now, one of the details that Luke tells us, like when we come to verse 4, when we read here, it says that Moses, Elijah, and Jesus were talking. And you ever wonder, what are they talking about? Well, you don't have to wait any longer. Luke tells us. It says they're talking about the upcoming crucifixion and resurrection. In other words, Moses and Elijah are there to see their mission fulfilled. And Jesus is telling them, guys, everything that you stood for, I mean, you talk about like being a fly on the wall, listening on a conversation. It'd be that conversation. I mean, everything that you guys were about, it's about to come to fruition. It's about to be completed. In other words, that Moses and Elijah represent the greatness of God in the Old Testament. But they come here pay homage to Jesus who will fulfill their words. This is a picture of greatness. And, and one of the things I, I think about when we see Moses in this passage is another place in Exodus. Chapter 34, 34, and 35. Listen to what it says there about after Jesus, excuse me, Moses comes off of Mount Sinai. Listen to what happens next. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, this is the tabernacle, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So what's happening here is that Moses is experiencing what's called the Shekinah glory. He's experiencing the glory. He's been in the cloud. it's like, you know, that amazing tan you've been always wanting, right? And it's like your skin's glowing, right? Well, Moses had the the ultimate tan of his life. And so much so that, that it was so brilliant. It was freaking people out. And so he had to put a veil on. His face was so glowing every time he was with God. But here's the thing. Much like the moon only reflects the sun that generates the light, Moses was just reflecting light. But where does the light come from here? It comes from Jesus. It's a, Again, it's this picture that Moses and Elijah, as important as they are, as prophets, Jesus is something more. Why do I make such a big deal about that? Because I know that some of you this morning, in a, in a, in a crowd this size, some of you this morning are wrestling to believe that Jesus is more than a prophet. That He's more than a teacher. And if you... And for those of you who have been here for any length of time, you know that, that we highlight this regarding Jesus, that He is King of kings and that He is Lord of lords, that we believe He's much more than a rabbi, that He's much more than a prophet or a great teacher. And if you, this morning you're coming and you're saying, this is the hard part. This is where I really wrestle to believe what you guys believe about Jesus. I want to say I'm glad that this is the place where you're wrestling. Because most people don't wrestle with Jesus as a prophet. Most people don't wrestle with Jesus as a great teacher. But you know you're getting closer to the truth when you begin to wrestle with the one who says, I command your life. That your life is forfeit because, because I have died your death that you might live my life. And so I want you to hear the words of Alistair McGrath, the great theologian in his own right. He says this, Christianity does not assert that Christ has authority on account of the excellence or acceptability of His teaching. Rather, the teaching of Christ has authority and validity on account of who He is, God incarnate. What makes Christianity authoritative is not the fact that, that Jesus was a great teacher. Because the reality he is, even someone like Tim Keller, great teacher that he was, he was imperfect. And he had to separate perfection from imperfection. Right? In my words, anyone who preaches here like, won't have the full counsel of God. And so it's easy to look at, to, you know, just a regular pastor or preacher or another teacher or even a prophet in their own day and say, well, they have many good things to say, but I don't agree with everything. But if he's the Messiah, it's not about whether or not you agree. It's about will you follow? Will he command your life? You see the difference there. And so if this is a place of your wrestling, struggling, I want to say welcome. I'm so glad you're here. One of our mantras is, belong before you believe. Let this be a place, a safe place for you to wrestle with. Is Jesus who He claimed to be? Because what matters is only that question. Not what you think about what He said about sexuality. About money. About ethics. About all the different things that we, that we struggle and wrestle with. What matters first and as a priority is the question, is He who He said He is? In His glory and in His greatness. Which I think leads here to the third thing. And that's this. Much more intimately, His worth. Look at verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Now, if you've been here for our series, you know that we've heard this before. At the very beginning of Mark's Gospel. The beginning of the ministry of Jesus... The voice comes out from the heavens and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And there, as we begin the second half of Mark's gospel, we see it again. This is my son. Well, let me tell you why that's so important. Jesus didn't, uh, wasn't transfigured so that his disciples would marvel at him. He didn't perform all these miraculous signs, the healing of the deaf and the blind, the mute and so forth. He didn't do all that so that people could say, man, Jesus is something. Man, we should probably give him some of our time or at least work with the deference construct with him. Uh, we should probably uh, you know, pay attention to some of the things that he says. No, he didn't do all of that because he was trying to find significance. He already knew who he was at the beginning of his ministry. And here as he starts the second half of a much more intense season of ministry that's leading him to the cross, he is reminded by the Father up on the mountain. And this is, this is a Jesus who who was constantly, I want you to hear this, he didn't just twice in his life hear the voice of God say, you're my beloved son. He was hearing this every day. We're only told here because of how significant it is at the beginning of Mark's Gospel and the beginning of the second part of Mark's Gospel. This is when we're hearing it. But I want you to know that Jesus every day heard the voice of the Father saying, you're my beloved. You're my delighted. Let me tell you why that's so important. Okay. Let, me, let, me, let me relate it to us. You and I are starved for glory. You and I are starved for glory. It's the reason why we act the way that we do. It's the reason why we we tend to highlight ourselves sometimes at the expense of others, including those that we love. We live in a society that speaks the language of self-glorification. And let's be honest, here in the church, honestly, often we're not any different. We, We hunger for glory. And why do we hunger for glory? Because we're made for glory. There was only one perfect relationship between a parent and a child, and it was this one. But you know what? In our earthly relationships, we're made to experience glory. We're made to know that we're made for glory. There was a a movement called Attachment Theory Movement It started in the 1950s. And uh, we've made mention here before. I know some of you are now familiar. It's now much more popular. It's the understanding that the first three years of life are the critical years of existence because of the synaptic connections. We have trillions of connections within our brain. And did you know that nearly 90% of all the connections your brain will ever make in terms of making memories done in the first three years of your life? 90% of the trillions of connections. Which means that as a child, what you experienced with mom and dad hardwired you for life. That's what attachment theory is about. Well, in the 1970s, there was a psychologist by the name of Dr. Edward Tronick and Dr. Tronic ran an experiment called the Still Face Experiment. Now, some of you have seen the video, and for the sake of time, I don't have a chance to show that video to you. Just this afternoon after sandwiches in the park, go and uh, Google Still Face Experiment. It's just a three-minute long video, but it will change your life if you think about it. In this experiment, it's a mother and their one-year-old child. And in this experiment, the, the mother and, and the child are, are properly attuned to, as the, as the one-year-old little boy is pointing at things in the world, the mom says, yes, I see that. Yeah, and so they're connecting, and, and the face is connecting. And so as the face of joy, this little boy who's excited to be with mom, just inches away from her face, as they're connecting with their eyes, full of joy, her face as well. It's called attunement. And so her expression, his expression are the same. But in the still-face experiment, Dr. Tronic has the mother turn around. And as she turns around... She comes back, stony face. There's no expression, and within ten seconds, the child falls apart. The child, this little boy, just absolutely falls apart. Trying to waves hands in front of the face, no, no response. Just it tries desperately, screams and begins to wail. I mean, you talk about it, it had to have been the most excruciating minute of this mother's life in the experiment. Don't you know it? But after about a minute of time, she came back and completely uh, repaired. She reattached, reattuned with her son. And they met their eyes once again, and all was well in the universe. Why do I say that? Because that is what we are made for. And when we don't have that, when that is broken, all of us in the best mother-daughter relationship, mother-son, father-daughter, father-son, in the best of those relationships, they are broken. But Jesus had the perfect one. He was perfectly grounded. And what I want you to see here wasn't just that he was great. It wasn't his glory was on display, but his worth. And he knew exactly where he was and who he was. And he needed to know that because of the fourth thing I want to share with you now. That was his mission. The fullness of Jesus is on display here because of how this passage ends. Look at verses 8 and 9. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Jesus is no longer transfigured. He puts the cloak of His humanity back on, we might say. And He comes down the mountain. And Jesus says to the disciples what we've seen Him say over and over and over again. It's called the Messianic secret. And Mark talks about this more than any of the other Gospel writers. Jesus says, don't tell anyone. At least not until after the resurrection. Don't tell anyone. Now, why does he say that? Why do we keep seeing this over and over and over again? Because he is on a mission. Just as as Peter last week was saying, Jesus, it doesn't have to be this way. Harkening back to the original temptation in the desert with the evil one. Jesus doesn't have to be this way. There's an easier pathway. Jesus is on a mission. And his mission is to the cross. I want you to just hold in your mind. The meditative side of this especially. I want you to hold in your mind the moment that Jesus is transfigured. What is happening there? We see all of heaven on display. We see truly Jesus in all of His majesty and all of His power, the kingdom of God, and all of His glory. What does He do? He comes back to us. This is a profound moment to reflect on. Jesus comes back to us. In that moment, I suppose he he could have just disappeared in his perfection, and in his glory, and in his greatness. And yet, he comes back to us. Why? Well, we're told in verses 11-13. through And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they please, as is, is written of him. Now, again, we're saying, wait a minute. He's, they're talking about Elijah. What does this have to do with Jesus? Well, remember what I said about, about uh, other gospel accounts on the transfiguration? Well, Matthew gives us another detail. It says in this exact same conversation, there's a parenthetical. It says the disciples knew they were referring to John the Baptist. The, the Elijah, the new Elijah, has already come. They're saying, well, maybe Jesus is that Elijah. And what Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. No, John the Baptist is Elijah. He is the forerunner of the Messiah. He's the one who comes and points the finger and says, This is the one. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one that you're looking for. And what does it say here in the text? It says that he must suffer. And it says that the new Elijah will also suffer many things. John the Baptist was beheaded, you see. You see, Jesus is saying it's already happened. And now we come to the conclusion of the mission, Peter, James, and John. For it was at this point high on Mount Hermon that he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. This is the moment where where he was so far away from Jerusalem, and now what we're going to see in the last eight chapters of Mark's Gospel is we're going to watch him come south, closer and closer to Jerusalem. There, high on the mountain, he was saying, the mission, my mission, will be complete. I will complete what I've set out to do. And here's the good news for you and me. The grace and mercy of Jesus Christ is that He did not ascend from Mount Hermon. But He ascended after the resurrection. The grace and mercy is that He said, I will take on the mission. The mission of Israel. Their first Israel. That was supposed to live out the law of God. The commandments that Moses was given. It was supposed to live out the words of Elijah the prophet for moral righteousness and how to live and be reflections of God into this world. And when Israel failed, Exodus, and that what do we see now? Jesus comes off the mountain as Moses came off the mountain. Jesus comes off the mountain, new Exodus. He will complete the Exodus, and he will go to the cross. You see, that's the mercy and the grace of God for us in this passage that we're intending to see. That God did not rest in His glory. Jesus did not rest in His glory prematurely. But came and He was humiliated and was shamed. As Isaiah 53 says, he He was of no repute. Ugly. Nothing to look at. No beauty to look upon Him. For He was shamed on our behalf. For He chose the mission of the cross. Now, in closing, what do we do with this? Very quickly here. I think there are two things. One is very clear from the passage, the other not so clear. Here's the first clear one. This is the verse 7. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. What should our response be? Having seen Jesus transfigured as Christians listening to this voice of the Father say, listen to Him. What do we do? How do we do that in particular? Well, the answer is what we always like to say around here at City Church. His words, His works, and His ways. You take Him in through the Scriptures. Don't look at just the red letter edition. Just look at His words, but also what He did and how He did it. Words, works, and ways. And then, what do you do? You follow His commands. As you see His words and His work and His ways, you follow His commands. And I know some of you are saying, Scott, that's hard. And yes, as I've said here before, there are certain commandments of God that are easier to follow than others, depending on your personality and depending on your struggles. But the reality is, and please mark my words, if you hear nothing else, please hear this. If that's your story, and let's be honest, it's all of our stories. If that's your story this morning, know this, that whatever He commands will always bring you abundant life. He will never ask you to do something that doesn't reflect your greatness that you're made for. through The design, the abundant life that you're made for. Listen to that, hear that again. He will never command of you anything that if you follow Him, will not bring you greater life. And who here would not want a greater life than what we currently have? The world yearns for that. We long for that. I'm here to tell you that the commands of Jesus are the way to abundant life. Even the hard ones, especially in the hard ones, to be honest with you. Those places where really it's the finances, the sexuality, it's something else. Man, listen. And how do we do that? Ground yourselves in His being. Ground yourselves in His Word. One of the things that we we highlight here at City Church is to know the Scriptures. And one of the things that we say here is that when you know the Scriptures, when you read the Scriptures, and when you take them in like a good feast, like a good meal, you'll learn to pray as well. Some of you say, man, I, Kirsten was doing this announcement earlier. Was just talking about, Man, some of you, you may struggle to pray. Let me tell you, if you begin to read the Scriptures on a rhythmic basis every day, you will learn how to pray. Because all you need to do is, as you read the Scriptures, say, Jesus, help me. Help me in my unbelief. We're going to hear more on that next week. Help me in the places of my unbelief. Help me in the places where I'm struggling and wrestling with your word here. That will teach you how to pray like nothing else in the world. To be grounded in him so it's to listen. And here's the thing that leads to transformation. You see, the word there for transformation in the Greek is a very familiar word. Metamorphosis. And, and what does metamorphosis mean? It means, it means to change the form but have the same likeness. And what, what, what Paul says over and over and over again, is the same thing that happened to Jesus' transfiguration is going to happen to you and me. I don't know if you ever stopped to think about that. The transfiguration just wasn't for Jesus. It was for you and me. How do we know that? Listen to what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Listen to that. Unveiled face. Right? Beholding the glory, the transfiguration. And because of that, we are being transformed, he says, into the same image. Whose image? The same image. The exact representation of his being. Do you see that? The transfiguration isn't just about Jesus. It's about you and me. And when we follow him further up and further in, we become transformed. As we look more and more like Him. The goal of our lives to this side of heaven is to look more and more like Him. But the good news is, even though we're going to fall short of that one day. Full transfiguration. Which leads to the last thing. It's not so clear. But once I mention it, it will be clear. Be encouraged. But this is a screaming message behind the obvious headline of listen here is be encouraged. Why? Remember who's Mark's audience? Who's Mark writing to? The church in Rome. What was Rome? The home of Caesar. The heart of the empire. The places of the greatest persecution for the church. And Mark was telling them the transfiguration is coming. It came and is coming. It is now but not yet the kingdom of God. And it is coming to you, those of you who suffer. And I think that's a message that we need to hear today. In a post-Christian increasingly hostile culture. To know that when we confess him openly. Not fearing the reputation of our fellow man, but instead holding on to his reputation for us. Confessing him openly and rightfully. Knowing that there will be hostility. As I mentioned last week, thanks be to God, it's not our physical lives at stake here in the West. But knowing that, that our reputations are at stake, that we will die a thousand deaths for holding on to the orthodox understanding of who Jesus Christ is, especially in a city environment like ours. Encouragement to us that we hear him say well done my good and faithful servant I love what C.S. Lewis says he says that uh, for the Christian this life is as close to hell as will ever come but for the non-believer the closest to heaven will ever come so I want to say this to you if you don't yet know him let it be the first half of what Lewis said not the second half let this experience of this life be the closest to hell you ever have to come knowing that the transfiguration the fullness where there's no more death no more sorrow will come Here's where I close. Christian mentioned it in his prayer. The very last words of Keller in his passing were, I want to go home. Send me home. And I, and I think that G- Tim is now hearing well done that good and faithful servant. And the fullness of the transfiguration is on display for him. And one day for you as well if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. My hope and my prayer that somehow in some way, whether you're here for a week or you're here for 20 years or beyond, that some way and somehow City Church will play a part in metamorphosis for you, in your transfiguration, in your transformation. And you'll become the men and the women that you're designed to be. Know this. One day in full, you're going to experience that. So the hope of today is In light of tomorrow. Let us now confess them. Before our city. That they might also be transformed into his likeness. Let's pray. Father we thank you for. The gift of the son of man. Jesus Christ. Who is fully on display in his divinity. But fully human. He had to be both. He is both. There could be no crucifixion. There could be no resurrection. Without both. Father we thank you for the transfiguration, for this passage, for allowing us just to meditate, to just to marvel at how Jesus was revealed and is still being revealed to us today. So continue that work. And for those who are not yet sons and daughters who might be here this, today, I pray that this city church is would be a place to explore that and what that looks like to call you Lord, King of Kings, the Lord of Lord, the Messiah.